everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, uh, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, and so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We're in a series in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the book of the Bible that comes after Jesus died resurrected, and then astonishingly ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. I mean, no one saw any of this coming. When Jesus came to earth, even his closest followers, even his dearest friends, Peter, James, and John, the the ones that Jesus spent the most time with, they did not see Jesus' death coming. They were not saying, oh boy, he's going to die for our sins. They had no idea, and when Jesus died, it was astonishing to them. They did not see his resurrection coming. The disciples were not standing outside the tomb counting down like a rocket launch. Ten, nine, eight. No, they had gone back to fishing. Uh, All of their hopes and dreams had been dashed when Jesus died. They did not know. And then Jesus raises from the dead and just suddenly, suddenly, a lot of the things that they were confused about started to make sense, like the things that Jesus had taught, the crazy statements that Jesus would make, like when he would say, I will tear the temple down in three days and then I'll rebuild it. And the disciples were like, what are you talking about? Like it would take a, a construction crew like months to tear the temple down. And of course, he was talking about himself because Jesus is the new way to discover God. Jesus is the new way to connect to who God is. And so he resurrects and the disciples, I mean, I don't know, but they're probably thinking, well, that was weird, but okay, here we go. And then they're loving it, of course, the resurrected Jesus. He's alive, he's alive. Death no longer has the sting that it once had. And I'll tell you what, in this community, in this time and place, that means a lot to us as a church, that death does not have the final say anymore because of Christ. It used to be that death got the last word, that death is very proud, very arrogant. I don't know, have you noticed that? Death kind of shows up and it takes your breath away. It just leaves you breathless and speechless. And as I imagine it, death then walks away and says, oh, I told them I I got the last word because we're kind of struck dumb by death, aren't we? And then God says, I've got a word. 
You don't have the last word anymore. Death, where is your sting? Jesus rose from the dead to remind us that death is not the end. It's simply a transition into a greater life with Christ and with God forever. And so there they are with the resurrected Jesus. They're loving that. And next thing you know, not very long afterwards, up he ascends right in front of their eyes. And thus the book of Acts begins. And that's the book that we're in right now. We're six or seven chapters into it. And oh my goodness, if you look at the highlights, it's, I, I find it overwhelming. I don't know how you find it. But you've got like a prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit blows in like a thunderstorm. And next thing you know, your friends have a, a pillar of fire resting on their head. I, I think about Jake Brown here at Discovery, who often will come out and host. I just picture, what would it be like to show up in my... I'm driving my son's Subaru right now. The, the Saab wagon is in another household enjoying its time, but I'm driving my son, I just imagine driving my son's Subaru into the parking lot, walking in, Jake comes out to give announcements, and then suddenly there's a pillar of fire on his head. I'll be like, well, that's not a normal Sunday experience. And then next thing is people can now start speaking in foreign languages so that everyone can hear the gospel. And then Peter and John are walking by the temple, right? And this person who is an invalid says, hey, do you have any money? I could really use some money. And Peter looks right at him and says, I don't have any money. I've got something way better than money. And it's a wonderful Sunday school song that some of you grew up singing. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And then anyone would like to sing it right now? He, do, do you guys know this song? I learned this song in public uh, elementary school. I did not grow up in Sunday school in Australia, but weirdly, uh, churches would send ministers to public schools and we would do our maths and our science and our social studies and our religion. Isn't that weird? And so I learned that song from Mrs. Gudgeon and her accordion in fourth grade. <laughs> and he went walking and leaping and... Okay, I'm feeling very alone. Who knows this song? A few of us know, some of you are like, what is this guy talking about? Really, it's a real Sunday school song, I promise you. Uh, these amazing things, and then as Zach was talking about last week, even the shadow of a disciple heals people. We have healings and miraculous events and supernatural, all kinds of things happening. And then we get to this point, and I love this about this story. I love this because I think for some of us, this is where you can shine today in the book of Acts. I don't know if you're a bit like me, but you read about disciples with pillars of fire in their head and speaking in tongues and miraculous happenings, and you're like, man, I, I would love that, but I don't experience that. If I could be honest, I'd love that, but I don't experience that. I believe it. I believe it, but it's not my daily reality. And here, those people who are having those miraculous events, they call a business meeting. Those of you who loathe church business meetings, they called a business meeting. And they said, we cannot manage the growth that we have. The Holy Spirit is doing so much work. We have all these people and we, we are buckling under the weight of all the things that we need to do. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically Peter said, hey, does anyone know how to balance a spreadsheet? Like, I mean, I, I know I'm paraphrasing. What, what they said is, look, we're getting too many details in our life. We need to go back to what we are good at, which is prayer and the ministry of the Word. And we want to raise up and delegate and deploy people who are good at things like administration, serving people in need, spreadsheets. Like, like you can see what's going on here, that Peter and John and the apostles, the, the big guys, they're saying two things that I think are really important. They're saying, if we are going to sustain growth, we must have structure. That's the first thing they're saying. We must have structure. And the second thing, I love what this is, is they're implying 
the ministry of the Word, the kind of work that I do, that Zach does, and prayer is no more spiritual than balancing a spreadsheet if you're doing it for the glory of God. How many of you tomorrow morning are leaving your house, and maybe nowadays, post-COVID, you work from home, right? You just sit in your office and turn on your computer. But so much of your work is logistical. I just think about this church, Discovery Church, and all of you who, you may not be very comfortable teaching a Bible study. Like, this may sound weird to you, but I'm very comfortable doing this. I like to do this. And for some of you, like, you would not catch me dead up here doing what this guy's doing right now. Right. You are more comfortable perhaps popping a hood and sticking your head in there and saying, what seems to be the problem? And this young single mum who has to get to work is saying, I, I don't know, it just, it's, it's broken. Oh, well, I, I can help with that. But you might be more comfortable holding a baby and soothing it when the preacher goes a little long. And then when that diaper needs to be changed, changing the diaper. You might be more comfortable sitting down with one of our teens and saying, tell me about your week and asking one of those great teenage questions. What was good? What was bad? What was weird? And just listening, being a place where these teens feel seen and heard. You might be more comfortable out in the community this week going at a precious child or a food pantry or something and simply stocking shelves and putting away clothes. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? The hands and feet of Jesus Christ, the physical representation. And so if that is more you, your time to shine is right here in the book of Acts. I want you to know you are in the book of Acts. Not everybody in the book of Acts experienced miraculous encounters. Some of them spent their time balancing a spreadsheet. Here's how I would say it. I am not a gardener. I'm not going to try to teach you anything about gardening. I am in many ways the Dr. Kevorkian of gardening. If I touch it, it tends to die. But here's what I do know. If you want to grow tomatoes or if you want to grow a grapevine, you have to have a trellis. You can't just plant the vine in the soil and just once it grows, it'll start to fall over and wilt and collapse. You have to have structure. And I think our faith is a combination of trellis and vine. Trellis and vine. This is what makes a church thrive, is people whose ministry is prayer and the word and people whose ministry is rolling up their sleeves and serving the least of these and serving each other and setting out the coffee, these kinds of things. So a couple of things that, that if that is more you, you are in the book of Acts. But secondly, secondly, I, I hate to uh, say something kind without also having a little left jab here. After all, I, I'm a preacher. Uh, secondly, in the book of Acts, it's very, very difficult to find any convert who just sits and attends church and goes home and does nothing else. Very, very difficult. In the book of Acts, the day you become a follower of Christ, you become deployed into God's kingdom. And it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you feel equipped or underqualified. If you are somebody who has been primarily experiencing discovery by sitting and receiving, this is your time to shine. We just want you to know we need you, not in some weird desperate way, but in a way to deploy your gifts and talents into the body of Christ. You can just go on our website this week and you can simply send an email there and say, I've been sitting a bit too long I felt the preacher's conviction. I would like to get in and make a difference. Uh, we'd love to help you with that. But also, our faith is a combination of trellis and vine, not just as a congregation. I also find this helpful on a personal level. I have gone through phases in my life where my faith is more trellis, to be honest. I'm going to read my Bible every morning, no matter how I feel. That's good. But I've also gone through seasons where my faith is more vine 
well, I'm just going to kind of do as it comes and hope something grows. And somehow between those two, there is a tension in our own personal faith between the structure that we need and the freedom to explore. I'll, I'll leave that with you. But one of the things you could do this week, this is not a significant point that I want to bring out from the text. This is just maybe a little thing that might help you. As you think of your own personal faith with God, is it more trellis or vine? Could it use a little more trellis? I'll be honest, right now, that's what I'm convicted of. I feel like God's saying, Steve, I think your faith could use a little more trellis than it has. Because quite honestly, there are times when I open my Bible and it's, um, what's the church word for it? boring. And so I don't do it. And so sometimes that's part of what it means to be spiritual. I have learned in my life that if I don't know how to be bored in God's presence, I may not grow. Now that may not be popular to say, but it's true. It's okay to not get much out of your Bible reading and keep turning the page. It's okay to be faithful in prayer. So, trellis or vine, that's just maybe for you to to stick with. Okay, back to the text, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen, remember he was one of the waiters. He's now going to be waiting tables. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people, and opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Just as a quick reminder, the Sanhedrin are essentially the religious leaders, but they're more than just religious leaders. Like they're way more than a pastor. There's some kind of combination of religious leader and political leader in one. Like they really ran the city. And so they were more than a local council. It would be kind of like meeting with a governor where the state required a certain kind of faith. That's the Sanhedrin, would be the governor's council. It's a big deal. Sanhedrin can put you to death. Sanhedrin put Jesus to death. So when, when you are before the Sanhedrin, this is quite a threatening thing. Okay, so they see Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, just a quick poll. When you think of somebody having the face of an angel... Do you think of like this kind, gentle, welcoming person or this really angry person ready to fight? Because both are in the Bible. I just want to remind us. And right now, I'm pretty sure based on the context of what Luke is writing here, I'm pretty sure they're experiencing the kind, gentle angel Stephen. But just a little, I don't mean to give the plot away, but soon they're going to run into like the Archangel Michael version of the angelic face of Stephen as he throws down on them. So they saw that his face was like the face of an angel, and then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? 
So Stephen is brought before a convening religious political council that can put him to death. And there are false charges trumped up against him, and now he has a chance to testify. And the primary accusation against Stephen is, you do not respect our religion, you do not respect the people most precious to us, like Moses. Is it true? The Sanhedrin, they're asking a very reasonable question. Are you in a cult? Do we need to protect our people from you? And, and honestly, with today's teachings, this is not a bad question to ask. Is what you're teaching true to Scripture, or are you making something up and getting a bunch of people to follow you and leading us astray? Are you desecrating what is very precious to us? Have you, Stephen, invented something new after thousands of years of rich tradition? And, and most keen, they're saying, are you spitting on Moses' name? Are you spitting on Moses, Moses who is so precious to us? So, the entire next chapter, 50 verses, we're not going to read it. You could read it at home on your own if you like. Acts chapter 7, verse 2 through 50 is Stephen's response. And it's worth your time. It's worth taking a look at because what Stephen does is if the accusation is you don't respect our tradition and you don't like Moses, Stephen doesn't begin his testimony with the resurrection of Jesus. He begins his testimony with the tradition of Israel. He tells them their own precious story and shows in his account, you can read it on your own, but he shows in his account that it's very precious to him as well. Stephen is saying, the thing that you hold so precious is precious to me. And what's interesting in, in Stephen's account is when he gets to Moses, like they're basically saying, are you spitting on Moses? He spends extra time on Moses. As you read it for yourself, Stephen's like, oh man, Moses, I could talk forever about Moses. What an amazing man of God. Stephen is saying that Jesus' resurrection is not a threat to your faith. It's the fulfillment of your faith. It's the, it's the thing that you have been longing for. It's the Messiah you've been waiting for. And I find it fascinating here that Stephen takes all this time to tell them their own story because these religious leaders were lost. They, they were lost. They couldn't see God when God was right under their nose. This might be, for example, one of my number one fears. What if God is right with me and I can't see it? Have you ever experienced that, whether you're a follower of God or not? Where you're like, man, I, I can't find the Lord. Like, like in the Old Testament when Jacob says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. That may be the passage of Scripture that haunts me personally more than any other. Or, or Cleopas in Luke chapter 24 when he's walking on the road to Emmaus and Luke says that Jesus walks right up next to him and Cleopas did not recognize Jesus when Jesus was right there. I read that, I'm like, ah, oh, I know that guy. And here's the Sanhedrin there. They can't recognize that Jesus is God's son. They don't recognize that the person that Moses pointed to, that Abraham pointed to and hoped for, that Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the prophets, they kept pointing forward. Every one of those people in the Old Testament pointing forward and everyone pointing at Jesus and the Sanhedrin missed it. And Stephen is trying to show them, you're lost. You're lost. So if you're a follower of Christ and you feel lost, you're in good company. I think we all do it from time to time. It's, it's, it's not okay, but it's a normal part of a lifetime of following Jesus to get lost once in a while. 
the beauty is we uh, have a God that loves to find. I appreciate that about God. God enjoys hide and seek. Um, it might be, though, that sometimes we have to stick a toe out, right? Like we're hiding too well. It's time to get out and help God find us. Like we all get lost. But for those of you who are not follower of Christ, it's hard to do this moment because we didn't read the history together. But if you go back and read the history that Stephen lays out, what I'm struck by is that Stephen is inviting every human being to live a life way beyond my own story. And what I'm trying to say is Stephen says God has a grand, large story and all of us get to fold our life into this big story. Maybe a, a more keen way to say it is life is way beyond just you. And I think one of the ways we get lost is we make our life too much about ourselves. In fact, I, I might go so far as to even say that it may not be any faster way that, to get lost than get wrapped up in yourself. That's why Jacob couldn't see the Lord when, when Jacob said, surely the Lord's in this place. I was not aware of it. Jacob was so wrapped up in himself. A Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, so wrapped up in himself. I get so wrapped up in myself, and that's when I forget the Lord, and I get lost. So if you're not a follower of Christ, you are invited today to fold your little short-term life into the grand story of God, to make your life so much more than just about you. And here's what's crazy, when you give your life to God and you die to your own will, you're free. You know, we live in a culture that teaches that freedom means I get to do anything I want. But what Stephen is telling Sanhedrin, what the gospel of Jesus is, is freedom is no longer having to live for yourself anymore. That's exhausting. Having to live for myself anymore, making sure I have enough money in the bank and I've got everything I wanted in this life, that's exhausting. Get off that treadmill and instead die to yourself and discover the resurrection power of Jesus Christ when you, you fold your little short-term, what's the polite word for it, inconsequential life into the grand, meaningful story of God. You are more than your story and you're more than your life. You can fold your life into the grand, vast story of God and be loved. And if you want to do that today, you can do it today. At the end of the service, when we leave, you can come down front. There'll be a couple of us down here. We would love to help you give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're watching online, we have people in the chat. You can right now put in the chat that that's something you want to meet with someone about or talk to someone about. If, I'll just be overt. If you're watching on demand, if you're watching on a Tuesday, uh, you can reach out to us on our website. We've got a link right there. Now, I know how resistance works when we're trying to do a courageous thing. So if you're actually watching on a Thursday afternoon and you're like, well, he said Tuesday, so that means I'm not going to do it. I don't know what to tell you. But the best time to give your life to Jesus is right now. Because why wait for freedom? Why, why would you wait on forgiveness? Just get it done. Okay. So... Up to this moment, everything Stephen says, he goes into the rich tradition. I think the high priest in the Sanhedrin would agree 100% with everything Stephen said. You can read it for yourself. But then things take a really nasty turn, and I mean a really nasty turn. This is where the angelic 
gentle uh, Stephen goes away and the Michael the archangel, always ready for a fight, angel Stephen shows up and Stephen says in Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people. Okay, just again, context. Stephen's like, let me tell you about Abraham and how amazing Abraham is and how, oh Moses, I love Moses. And then a sharp right turn, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Hmm. I think if Stephen and the Sanhedrin went to marriage counseling, I think the counselor would encourage Stephen to use more I language, um, less kind of you, maybe more we and us. No, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's accusing and he's blaming. When you accuse and you blame people who have a lot of power and a lot of power of you, it never goes well. Especially when you are accusing and blaming people who have a vested interest in keeping things exactly the way they are. It's always been this way. And especially when they feel profoundly threatened by you. So, Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. They were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Those of us who have been around the Bible for a while, when we think of gnashing of teeth, I think our natural thought is pain and agony and torture. A lot of people were raised in churches that teach that hell involves gnashing of teeth. That's because Jesus said, I will cast you into a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we think, oh, well, they must be tortured and gnashing their teeth. But actually, actually, if you, this would be really fun, I think, to do. If you wanted to do a little Bible study of teeth gnashing, which not many people have done, if I may. But if you wanted to do a little Bible study of teeth gnashing, you would discover that every time people gnash their teeth in the Bible, they are angry and filled with self-righteousness. They're not in pain. So when Jesus says, I'm going to cast you to a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, what Jesus is saying is, you are filled with self-righteousness and anger that I get to do this to you. And so I'm gnashing my teeth in anger. So what happens here is the Sanhedrin hear Stephen and they are furious and the evidence of their fury is they gnash their teeth. There's just not much teeth gnashing today, is there? Have you ever been with somebody in, you know, 21st century where someone gets mad at you and so they gnash their teeth at you? Well, I actually found an example. Let's take a look at it real quick. You guys really are cowboys. What's your problem, Kazansky? You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Nice, man. I am dangerous. I don't know why that tickles me so much, but it just tickled, because I'm picturing the director, I think Tony Scott directed the first Top Gun, and I'm picturing that that right there was like the 17th take, and Tony Scott's like, that's still, Val, it's still not working, like, okay, this time punch him on the shoulder, because he's tried like grabbing him or, or hitting him, or they punch him, and then finally someone says, why don't I gnash my teeth? Do people still do that? Yeah, yeah. And then there it was. 
All right, so gnashing of teeth, they're angry. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's Will Willimon who reminds us that all throughout Acts, visions are a primary means of God making clear to us on earth the reality of what's going on in heaven that we can't see. Stephen has a full vision of Jesus Christ. Apparently the Sanhedrin didn't get it. It was just Stephen that saw it. And he said what he saw, I see God in the flesh. I see Jesus. I see my Lord and Savior. That right there, I believe, is when Stephen really started to realize, okay, here we go. Things are going to take a turn. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll learn more about him in the coming weeks. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell to his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep which, of course, is Luke's euphemism for he died. So right here in Acts chapter 7, we have the first of many Christian martyrs. Stephen was the first follower of Jesus in the next 300 years to willingly give his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. This became a rich tradition from this moment on because Christians from this moment on for about 325 years in the Roman Empire were hunted down and killed and persecuted. And you can read your early church history if you want, but dozens and hundreds and even thousands of followers of Jesus, were, it's called martyred. They were martyred for their faith. They, they willingly gave their life for this thing that they believe in. Uh, Will Willimon again, he says, the story of Stephen reminds us practitioners of polite, civil, mentally balanced religion that once there, was Christ, there were Christians who quite joyfully parted with their possessions, their family, their friends, even life itself in order to remain faithful. In fact, from now on, as you read through the book of Acts, you can picture that every main apostle followed in Stephen's footsteps. That guy Saul that they mentioned who was at Stephen's stoning, uh, many of you know, later became one of the great apostles, Paul, his conversion story coming up in two weeks. That guy also gave his life for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter died for Jesus Christ. John died for Jesus Christ. Everyone you find in the Gospels that followed Jesus gave their life for Christ, except, of course, Judas, who betrayed him. That must be why Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The challenge for us is we live opposite today, to live is gain and to die is Christ. I, I don't say that with any condemnation. I just think that's the difference between us and Paul and the 
people in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, things were so tenuous, the Holy Spirit was so present, but also their lives were so like at risk that they willingly gave them. They were very happy to give their life because they knew that eternity with God where there's no more suffering, no more pain would start. If you go back through your church history and you trace every song written by African-American slaves, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, those kinds of songs, those songs are essentially saying, God, get me out of here now rather than later. Life in eternity is better than life now. But for those of us in Western culture where there's tremendous freedom and prosperity and as a general rule, tremendous health, what we want is the opposite, long life now and then eternity later. Like, for example, my dream, my hope, is to watch my grandchildren grow up and graduate from college. That's what I want. Let me live a long, great life, and then, Lord, I would love eternity with you. That would be just Jake. That would be so great. But Paul was beaten, persecuted. Stephen was persecuted. They're like, I would prefer a short life. This life is lousy. I would like a short life. And then let me have eternity with you. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with the book of Acts is because this massively different culture. And I, I hope we don't make the mistake of trying to be more like them because we don't live in a persecuted culture. It's just different. So I don't think the goal is to try harder to be a martyr. It could be a little weird around here. If you martyr yourself for no apparent purpose at all in a place that celebrates freedom of religion, that would just be puzzling to your neighbors. I think the challenge is to find how is it that they had such a clear vision of Jesus and therefore how can we have a clear vision of Jesus as well? What can we do this week to have a clearer vision of Jesus than we had coming in today? Is that possible? Is that something we can do? Last year I was sitting down with a friend of mine named Katie and she, was in, uh, she had an executive position in a Christian nonprofit. And she was profound and phenomenal, and she'd really poured her heart into it for years and years and years. And a lot of what she did was keep people away from the rough edges of the CEO. The CEO was just kind of a jerk. And so a lot of people really followed her, and they didn't really follow him. And he got threatened by it, and after years of faithful service, he fired her. Not for any reason, but because he was threatened by her quality of leadership and how she was a safe space for people. And it, it really hurt. She loved what she did. It was taken from her. And uh, a few months went by, and she was just really not doing well with the trauma of it and the kind of the whole gaslighting that happened. And her husband went to her, and he's like, look, you're kind of, you're kind of treating all of us like an enemy. It's like you're not safe anywhere. Like we're all a threat to you. I wonder if you'll go get help. And she told him what she thought of that idea. She told him where to stick that. And he's like, well, I think that's the point, like the, what you're doing now. And so, so she went to a therapist. And I don't remember why, but she, she didn't find a Christian therapist. She found a, an unchurched therapist, and she went in really combative. He was an enemy as well because he wasn't a person of faith. And at the end of the first session, there she is boxing her therapist. And at the end of it, he said, hey, I've got a question for you. Where is home for you? Where is home for you? And as soon as he asked her the question, she knew exactly what he was asking. Her safety radar had been up and everything was a threat. And she was exhausted because there was no place or no people or no activity where her safety radar could come down and she could be exactly herself, fully known, fully seen, and fully loved, that's home. He wasn't asking her zip code. 
He was asking where she goes, who she's with, and what she does to deeply connect to herself and to God. And she told him. She said, I'm embarrassed to say it. It's not my husband. It's not my house. It's the beach being pampered, spending more money than I deserve on massages and sitting on the beach and reading a book and eating great food and doing nothing by myself. And he said, okay, don't come and see me again until you've done your homework. Go do some homework. And it took her a while to schedule time and save up the money, and she went and went home. And she made an appointment with a therapist, and she walked in, and he says, oh, I see you've been home. He could tell. The radar was down. She was able to connect and freely love and be loved because she went home. I believe, I, I may be wrong, I believe Stephen's secret and Peter's secret and John's secret. Now, okay, yes, they had a distinct advantage over us because Jesus was so manifestly present to them and Jesus can be so difficultly el elusive for us. Can I say it this way? Their life was harder than our life as a general rule. Their life, harder than our life. But, but, their faith life, easier than our faith life. Is that fair? I know it's not popular to say in church. I know what we want to say is just try harder to be more like the people in the book of Acts. I personally find that to be unhelpful. What I find to be helpful is to say their life was harder, my life is easier. Their faith life was easier, my faith life is harder. Because Jesus was right there. I would give anything to look up in the heaven like Stephen. I would prefer people not be holding stones when I happen, but I'll take it. But I would love to look up and have a clear vision of Jesus. Where I'm like, you're with me, you're with me. I'm home. I'm home. I think their secret was that Jesus was truly their home. And I, I understand I'm anachronizing here if Stephen went to his little secular therapist in first century Roman Empire. And the therapist said, Stephen, where's home for you? I think Stephen would have said and meant, Jesus is my home. And what's true about me is my home is more often than not Jesus plus a lot of other things. I'm not saying this to see if we can curry our way into just Jesus this week. It helps when there's a pillar of fire on your head. It helps when you say, silver and gold have I none, raise up and walk and somebody does. But, but, but. We get so caught up in ourselves, don't we? And what would it be like for you to do some homework this week? Where is home for you? Where's your home? Where, do you, where is your radar down where you can fully connect to God and love and be loved without threat or concern exactly as you are? What can, might you do? Where might you go? Who might you be with this week? to really deeply connect to God. We're just going to give you just three or four minutes to practice that right now. It's, it's, there's nothing threatening about this, but we're going to do it through our weekly tradition of receiving communion. Communion today is simply going to be a, a little way that we can go home just for a few minutes. So for our communion ushers, I'm going to ask you to go around and, and pass out the elements. And I'm very sorry, I forgot to bring mine out. I was going to bring mine out. So I'm going to go get mine. I'm going to have Alex and the crew and Jimmy come out and prepare. And our ushers just start passing around communion. For those of you unfamiliar with this, you'll take a little piece of bread and a little cup. You'll just hold it. I'll get mine and we'll go through this together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
which is the night before he was crucified, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat of this bread, you do it to remember me. And in a similar way, Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood shed for you every time you drink of this cup you do so in remembrance of me. And we're instructed all through the Bible that every time we gather together, we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup. Now, to be honest, there are times where I find it difficult to see the overt revelation of Jesus in the book of Acts and then look at this little wafer. It feels so disparate. But this taste and this flavor and this touch and these senses is just another opportunity for us to remember the Lord when we're wrapped up in ourselves and to fold our story into God's grand story. So what I'm gonna invite us to do now is just go home. Is when you're ready, you can do it on your own time. Just take the bread and remember the Lord and take the cup and remember the Lord. And remember that that's the invitation for us to be home, fully relaxed into God's presence. We don't have to strive, we don't have to get it right. We don't have to be pure. We can come exactly as we are to God. All our sin, all our shame, all our regrets, we can bring it all. And it's quite threatening because we are fully known and fully seen and fully loved. Whenever you're ready, I know for some you're still having it passed out, but you can take it when you're ready. The body and the blood of Jesus. just going to give this time to you. I'll, I'll say as few words as possible to get out of the way. We are going to begin singing about this home that we've all given our lives to. And you might prefer to sit and just soak for a while, but when you are ready, I invite you to stand. So if you are ready now, you can go ahead and stand now, and the rest of you can stand when you're ready as we sing. <laughs> 